Hey loves, I'm Marley Liss, and welcome to the Sensual Revolution. This is a global movement to reclaim sensual empowerment on an embodied and systemic level. My personal path of sensuality has not been easy. Shame around my body image, sexual abuse, and my queerness had me dissociated and numbed the heck out. It's been a big journey to get to where I am today, but I really have turned my pain to purpose. Along the way, I've learned our personal healing makes epic waves in this world. This podcast is here to remind you that your healing is selfless. When you learn to shed shame, love your body, and claim your worth, you pave the way for all people to do the same. Here, you can expect to hear from sexual educators and healers who work at the embodied level of sensual empowerment, as well as policymakers and justice leaders who work at the systemic level. It's all connected. So whether you're at the very beginning of your own sensual healing journey, or you're a sex-positive advocate and superstar, this community welcomes you. Let's come together and revolutionize this planet one loving, sensual step at a time. Hello loves, welcome back to another episode of The Sensual Revolution. I'm so, so, so excited for you to hear this conversation today. I got to talk to the absolutely amazing Bria Baker, who is such an icon in the world of transformative justice, queer black feminism, abolition, so many different things. And we had the most amazing conversation. Bria is a freedom fighter, a writer, who's been working on the front lines for almost a decade first as a student activist and now as a nation and global strategist. She's contributed to dozens of electoral and advocacy campaigns, including the 2017 Women's March, where she served as the youngest national organizer, okay, the 2018 student walkouts against gun violence. She was even recognized as a 2017 Glamour Woman of the Year and 2019 ID Up and Rising. She's held internships with the U.S. Department of State, Public Defense, under Service DC, served as president of Yale's NAACP chapter and co-director of AIDS Walk New Haven, and she's just such a beautiful human and is able to talk about some real complex and deep subjects in a very beautiful, hopeful, uplifting way is what I would say. So we get into today so many different things, including Bria's journey with finding abolition and waking up to the injustice and pain of the criminal justice system, avoiding burnout in activism, defining transformative justice. We talk about the history of the police rooted in racism and slavery, the importance of going beyond reform and focusing on transformation, keeping our minds and hearts open to redemption. And we talk about weaving principles of abolition and transformative justice into our interpersonal relationships and communities. This is genuinely such a special conversation and I'm really excited for you to hear it. I'm also really honored to be doing many, many talks throughout the month of April for Sexual Assault Awareness Month. So if you're someone who's looking for a speaker, a panelist, someone to interview, I would be honored to speak to you and your communities about these topics of restorative justice, sexual violence, healing after trauma, and inclusive sex education. So if you go to marleylist.com slash speaking, you'll see tons of information on that. Please do reach out. I'm so here to amplify these messages and make sure that All of us have access to this really, really important and world-healing information. So let's dive into today's episode. I can't wait for you to hear it. Hello, everyone. I'm so excited to be here with Bria Baker, who I would call an icon. Like, I'm genuinely so inspired (laughs) by your work in the world. (laughs) Likewise. So thank you. That is such high praise from you. I really appreciate it. And I'm so happy to be here. Yay. Thank you. So first question I always love starting with, and you can answer in whatever way feels good and authentic is who are you in this chapter of your life? Yes. Ooh. Okay. I always lead with the fact that I'm an activist first and a writer second. Hmm. Um, I am a queer black woman, newly married, really excited about that. I am a daughter and a sister and a granddaughter of the South. And um, all of those identifiers are really, really important to me. But I think like 
sometimes when we're describing who we are, we want to jump straight into like what we do. Mm -hmm. Um, So to shift away from that, I think I'm just a human who's trying to figure out why we get the chance to be on this earth for however long we get to be here and what we can do to leave it better than we received it. Beautiful. Uh, I feel that. Thank you for that. And I have to say too, that like, as a queer person witnessing your wedding photos and your queer love online has been so beautiful. I literally like showed my mom before this. I was like, look how beautiful. (laughs) It has been the best. And I just love that people uh, are resonating with it as much as we did, obviously. I mean, that day was so special for us. But I think to your point, like, I think queer people resonated with it because they know how hard we have to fight to be happy and to like live in our fullness and our truth. And so I'm just, I'm just so grateful to get to do that and mm. for people to love it and and shower us with that support. Um, Cause it can be scary of like, okay, I hope this doesn't trend in a negative way. And people are like yeah. flooding the comments with like really homophobic things. And it's been the exact opposite. It's just been mm. such an outpouring of love. I'm so happy to hear that the internet can be such a wild place. So I'm really happy that that's very, very. (laughs) Yeah, but that's been the outcome. So can you share more about the work that you do? And again, like in whatever way feels inspired, what led you to that work? Mm, Yes. Okay. So I started this work as a student organizer. I was 17 when Trayvon Martin was killed. We are coming up right on the 10 year anniversary of Mm -hmm. that. Um, And that moment marked so much for me, not even just his murder, but it was actually the subsequent court case Mm -hmm. Um, and seeing how hard his family and activists had to fight for him to be, for George Zimmerman to even be arrested. And then for it to be a year and a half of advocacy and legal cases, and then it not be anything for them. And then to think of like, wow, what did this family go through? Um, and what did they get in the end? Like they had to just live their pain every single day, fight for their son and the justice they thought they were going to get through this criminal legal system. And then they didn't get that. And so now what, you know, it's like, I think I felt very played in that moment and really had a lot of rage. And I had people in my life who were saying, there is something we can do about that. And maybe it doesn't look like what some other people are saying, but do the work, like understand what people have been saying about this for some time and understand like how we can get out of the cycle. So that pushed me into being a student activist. Um, and that was like, yeah, 10, 10 years ago. Um, and then following college, I had no idea what I wanted to do. My activist work had all been volunteering and I'm really grateful to have come of age at a time where we were using social media for activism, but not in the way that it sometimes happens now where activists are also influencers. And I, right. I think it's a, a line that I'm now towing. And I, I don't like it when people refer to me as an influencer, but I understand that just the dynamics of social media have shifted so much. But coming out of college, I didn't realize that you could have a career and be compensated for your work. And so I wasn't sure what to do. And I did more volunteering while holding down jobs that didn't feel like they were tugging at my heartstrings the way that I wanted to be doing something that like felt like what I was put on this earth to do. Mm. Um, but after the Women's March and getting to be a national organizer with them, I decided that I, I just wanted to be spending the majority of my time um, advocating for my community in solidarity with other communities. And I've been doing that ever since through my writing, but also through cultural organizing. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Uh, thank you so much. I am thinking of, I don't know if you know her, Necca McGregor, who does a lot of work in transformative justice as well. And she just shared on, on an earlier episode of this podcast, like, it's not like, she's like, it's not hard work, it's heart work. And I yeah. just, yes. yeah, I could so feel that in the way that you're saying that and just like, yeah, work that really tugs on your on your heartstrings and fulfills in that way. And I know that activism can be such a realm of burnout a lot of the time. And that's mm-hmm. real and important to acknowledge. And it's really beautiful to hear yeah. the ways that it also fills us. One million percent. Oh, I love the description that you gave for that because I do think it fills us. And I think that's why a lot of us keep coming back, even though it's hard, even though we don't often win, Um, but it's this idea that like, I'm surrounded by people who 
look at the worst things this world has to offer and still see beauty and still fight for something better. And it restores my faith in humanity. It really does. And I, I think I am so grateful to be in that bubble, but it is a bubble. So sometimes when I step out of it and people are just like exclusively pessimistic or exclusively jaded, and I'm like, listen, that comes from a very real place. Like there's a lot of pain and trauma in this world, mm-hmm. but there are also people working every second of every day to redirect that and to transform that. And I think it's helpful to know that and, and to know that we're not just like, you know, succumbing to it and victim to it, but we can be agents of change too, um, which is something that I see you doing every day. So you're absolutely one of those mm-hmm. people like I'm talking about, so. Thank you. Thank you. My heart is like very happy hearing that. And just what you said about like restoring faith in humanity, just that, that point of like seeing the most painful things on the planet and still holding that faith and vision. It's just like, oof, like that's the energy I feel our world so needs right now. So thank you for that. Um, so we initially connected through Inspire Justice, which is like founded by J-Love and Matt McGorry. And I know that a major principle of that is transformative justice. Mm-hmm. So could you just share like what is transformative justice and what does it mean to you as well? Yes. Okay. So transformative justice um, is like the antidote to the current system of justice that we have, if we can even call it a current system of justice. But right now, you know, to to oversimplify, of course, the way that our criminal justice system works is that we wait for something to happen. And after the fact, we decide what to do with the person who committed that harm. Mm -hmm. And it's a very reactionary form of justice because it does depend on something bad happening. Um, Police are fighting crime by figuring out who did it after they already did it. And transformative justice is the antidote to that because it says, well, if we know that people are killing each other, are abusing each other, are violating each other, are stealing from each other, let's address it before it happens. Let's figure out why people are doing that and transform that. So Mm -hmm. it's a system of one saying like, let's support those who are survivors or victims of this harm in this moment and let's focus our justice on them first and foremost, versus regardless of what you as a survivor or victim want, I have a responsibility to bring this court case in a certain way and make you relive that pain in a certain way. And um, it doesn't matter what it is that you want, it's the people versus, right? It's not centering that person anymore. Um, But transformative justice says, let's focus on you, making sure that you are healed and that we understand what you need to be healed, what, supports you. And that could be different from what this person needs over there. Then after we supported you, let's also support the person who hurt you. And I think that's the part of transformative justice that catches people up, especially in like the more vengeful part of our society. But it says, why are you so inclined and so incentivized to hurt someone else? Why do you not see that person's humanity? What either happened to you or what systems propped you up to be able to do that? And let's address that. And that might be like, oh, you are a victim of abuse and no one saw for your healing and your healing transformed into something that is now hurting other people. So we've got to hold you accountable for the harm that you've caused, but we've also got to heal your inner child or whatever part of you never got that version so that you can stop reproducing that harm in other places. Or perhaps there's not something that needs to be healed. You just figured out you can make a lot of money by hurting other people. And we have to remove the incentives that you have to hurt other people so that you will stop doing that. But it's it's a lot more proactive and it's also a lot more bird's eye view. It says, I can't just say, you know, what like law and order, you know, CSI does, which is like, oh, someone robbed you. I got to find that person who robbed you. And that person is responsible for why you don't feel safe. It's like, mm. no, why did that person rob you? What was leading to their sense of precarity and vulnerability? And what about the environment didn't stop that person from robbing you? Is Were you in a very dimly lit area and um, that made you also feel unsafe? So in addition to holding this person accountable, let's build more infrastructure into the built environment so that you can walk home and not feel like you're the bad person for walking home at night or <laughs> that you should have done more to protect yourself when in actuality, that's something that we should all be able to do. So it's just like, how can we address systems? Um, and there's a quote that I love that says, violence is evolutionary and it builds over time. 
And I think that's something that transformative justice is really good at picking out is like this act of violence didn't start here. It may have like bubbled up here, but something happened before this moment and we've got to get there to either stop this person from doing it again, but also stop other people from doing it again. Mm -hmm. oh, thank you so much for that. It was such like a clear explanation. And I think a reaction or a response that I get often to like transformative and restorative justice is this kind of perception that it's very like kumbaya kind of yeah. bypassing like we're gonna just like feel our way through it and like it's all right. fine like choose love and I just really <laughs> appreciate that explanation because it's so like to me it's so much more practical obviously to a yeah. lot of people it's so much more practical than that punitive approach and there's also um I might be saying his name wrong but a Kazuhaga quote from healing resistance that was like um every time we just point at one individual we're letting all of these systems off the yes. hook yes yeah Ugh. yeah so real. Uh, so real. and to your point about kumbaya I think uh uh like people talk about gentle parenting in that way. Mm. And so I see a lot of parallels because honestly, I see gentle parenting as like an offspring of like how we implement transformative justice and abolitionist ideas in our day-to-day -day life. But I think people in the same way feel like, oh, well, if I'm not beating my kid or if I'm not like putting them in a closet, if I'm not locking you up underneath the jail, like not even in a cell, but just like, I want, I want you to suffer as bad as I did that we're not holding people accountable. And it couldn't be further from the truth. The transformative justice processes I've been a part of have held people accountable in ways that are so much realer and harder than um, what happens in a prison. And that's not to say, I, I think the experience in a prison is really difficult because it's very traumatic, um, but it's not actually a rehabilitative process. And the transformative justice processes I've been a part of that say, no, you've been hiding behind this wall and we're going to make you come out from behind that and talk about and face the reality of your actions and really see not only this person's humanity, but your own. Hello, loves. Just jumping in to tell you about the 2S LGBTQIA community space that Eva Bloom and myself have created. The Fuck Compet Support Club is an epic space to connect with fellow queer and questioning humans, to build community and to process compet, which is short for compulsory heterosexuality. This space is just $10 per month and you'll get access to a guided monthly Zoom call and an ongoing Discord space for connection. There's always so much gorgeous community and chats happening in that space. So go to patreon.com slash support club, spelled as I said it, but minus the U in fuck, or to make things easy for yourself, just click the link in the show notes. Here you'll find more details and you'll be able to join there. We'd love to welcome you in, whether you've been out for years, are exploring new depths of your queerness, or are questioning your sexuality right now, this space is for you. You truly do belong, and we'd be so excited to welcome you into the club. Because often people who harm others are denying themselves something. And like, once they let that out, then they have to deal with all these emotions they've been like holding down. And it's such a, it's such a authentic process, but it does require work. And I think people are just not willing to put in the work. And so they say, well, what can make me feel better? What makes mm -hmm. me feel better is knowing that we locked someone away, even if we're not really sure that it's the right person, right? Which our criminal justice system does all the time is they lock someone away because the police chief or the mayor says, this is a bad PR run, right? We need somebody to go down for this so that the community can feel safe again. And they would rather give people a false sense of safety than to actually find out why or who really did what's going on and address that. And so like, I think like the exonerated five or the central park five is a great example of that. It's mm -hmm. like, okay, this really vicious act of violence happened to this young woman. And it's like, we've got to lock up these five teenagers for it because somebody has to go down for this. Even if that means we're putting the wrong people away, we're destroying not only these five lives, but their families' lives, their loved ones, the futures that they could have had. And we didn't actually get safety for anyone. We didn't actually address sexual violence or any of the other things that led to this young woman being hurt and insulted in the way that she was. And I think that's something that like people don't want to acknowledge is our police are not 
making us safer. They are responding to something that's already happened, but they're not stopping it from happening again. And I think that's something we've got to like face, you know, face the music on. Yeah. Oof. Yeah. I feel so much clarity around like, what's the actual goal in what you're saying? It's like, is the goal to end violence? Right. Right. Or is it to like, put out a satisfactory headline that calms people down for a minute. Exactly. Like, exactly. Yeah. Uh, I just, I feel so wholeheartedly like such deep um, resonance with everything you're saying. And I can, I can like, you know, I've had these two experiences. Like I've had the experience of sitting in a courtroom um, for sexual violence and doing that punitive process. And then I've also had the experience of like, which I feel very privileged to have had, like sitting in a, in a restorative justice circle and feeling like the actual transformation and work and authenticity. And it's just like fucking night and day. So yeah, oh, it's so <laughs> night and day because honestly, our criminal justice system um, really sets up people who have harmed, even if they want to acknowledge it, to not acknowledge it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you have a person's legal team telling them do not admit guilt, do not admit um, remorse until it comes time for sentencing. But up until that point, we need you to double down on the fact that you didn't hurt anybody and almost like gaslighting. Mm -hmm. So even if they do have the right person in the room, that person is being told that they cannot um, express regret and, and, and ask for forgiveness because that will lead them to sentencing. And so because they're so afraid for their own life and their own future, they have to decide, do I put myself first or do I give you um, what you deserve, which is honesty from me. And Mm -hmm. I think um, how to get away with murder has a scene where they kind of depict that, where they, you know, bring a harm doer into a room and he's like trying to, you know, apologize and express and, and everything about the system is like, you're not supposed to do this. Like you're, you're messing up our case and our defense. And it's mm-hmm. like, this is all that mother wanted to hear. She doesn't necessarily yeah. want him to sit in prison for the rest of his life. She wants to hear, I am so sorry that I took your son away from you. And I want to do whatever I can do to fix that with you. And I think that people, one, underestimate how much an apology can really resonate. I think a lot of people are fighting their whole lives to be told, like, you're not wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, this did happen to you. I'm validating that. And I'm apologizing and taking that real accountability and being sincere with it. And nothing Mm -hmm. about our criminal justice process does that. It's so antagonistic. And it's like me versus you versus us against the harm. Mm -hmm. And like, I think that's something that even like for those who have been victimized, um, they, they really never get that. Even if the right person goes to prison, it's like, okay, maybe he apologized during sentencing. Do I trust that that person was doing it out of sincerity or was that person doing it to get the best possible deal for them? And mm-hmm. you, you just never know like why people are doing the things they're doing because nothing about the process is intended to, to focus on like healing. You know, mm-hmm. I, I love that you got to get that more restorative side. And I love that you're also extending that to other people and, and, kind of teaching people because I do think people need to like unlearn the ways that we've been taught like this is the only form of justice and then relearn like there's another way and Mm -hmm. maybe you didn't even think this was something worth pursuing because you didn't even know to think about it or dream about it yeah yeah and so often that's the response I think it is just like it's it is such deep conditioning yeah oh so many things (laughs) So many things. I know. Okay. So I was really deeply impacted by your article. I wrote down a quote on um, why I became an abolitionist. Mm. And first of all, I think a lot of people are confused about that word abolition Mm. and what it actually means. So can you like define that for us and then just share about like your journey of why you became an abolitionist and what that means to you? Yeah. So abolition generally, like we are talking about prison industrial complex abolition, but abolition generally is saying, this is a system that doesn't work for us. Instead of trying to make band-aid fixes over time incrementally in a way that maybe makes the system smarter at producing the harm that it does, but is not actually eliminating the harm, we need to get rid of it altogether. So I think the most prominent 
abolitionist movement was the abolition of chattel slavery, um, which, you know, people know happened in the, you know, 1800s in the US. And it's this idea that like, we can't reform slavery, though there were literally people who believed we could reform slavery. And like, okay, if we told slaver owners that they couldn't whip the people that they're enslaving, um, then maybe that would be a little bit better. Like, let's stop the violence in that sense of it, but they'll still own another person. Mm -hmm. And it's like, no, there's no reforming the system. We've got to just like get rid of it and build something new in its place. So similarly for the prison industrial complex is acknowledging that like, one, our current form of like prisons and police is a literal offspring of slavery. Um, slave patrols and union busters and just like systems of protecting the property of the powerful. Um, but then like now that it has evolved and we believe that it's meant to keep us safe, is it actually keeping us safe? And have any of the reforms we've been doing worked? Like let's stop doing multiple centuries of reforms and try just like starting from scratch. And I think that's scary for people is like, oh, that means tomorrow there will be absolutely no police and no prisons and it's gonna be like the purge. And it's like, no, we're going to transform these systems and say, we need a better way of achieving justice for people. We need better healthcare systems. We need better housing. What are the things that make people resort to hurting others and how do we eliminate those things and uh ruth wilson gilmore describes it as like abolition is about abolishing the conditions under which prison became the solution to problems because mm. we throw people in a prison and we we make people invisible and believe that that makes us safer and it's like okay great that murderer is now in a cell but mm -hmm. like, unless that person is literally going to die in that cell, they eventually will come out. And is anything about that prison experience stopping them from coming out better at murdering people than they were when they went in? Um, better at harming people, better at taking from people than they went in. And actually we joke about the fact that no, we're gonna put people in prisons where they're gonna be susceptible to sexual violence, physical mm -hmm. violence, uh, mental violence. And then they're gonna come out even more broken than they were when they went in and potentially harm people even more. And so mm -hmm. that's what abolition is about. And I think my journey really did begin with Trayvon Martin's case. It was the idea that I had put all of my eggs in the basket of the criminal justice system to say, oh my gosh, there's no way that this system will side with a grown man who killed this teenager, this teenage mm -hmm. boy, and the entire world is watching. And with all of that, like with, with us, like, protesting in the streets and with president of the United States saying that could have been my son and all of that. And we couldn't get justice for him. It made me rethink what justice even was. Like if we had put George Zimmerman in a cell, would that have stopped other vigilantes or other law enforcement um, folks from killing people like a Trayvon Martin? Would it have stopped any of that violence? No. Then what would? Like, how do we actually figure out like what stops police from killing them. So initially at the beginning of the Black Lives Matter movement, it was all, we need, you know, body cams and we need training for police. Mm -hmm. and it was like, well, a body cam is one only going to catch it on camera, but we also know that we've caught things on camera before and that didn't get us the justice that we thought we were going to get. So mm -hmm. not only are we waiting until after something has happened, but now that video is going viral, it's traumatizing people further and we're not even getting the justice that that video was supposed to get. So I don't mm -hmm. wanna advocate for body cameras. I wanna advocate for something that stops the violence to begin with. And, and I think asking myself those questions of like, what world do I wanna live in? And do I honestly believe that people can change really did spur my abolitionist um, journey. And I think mm -hmm. it starts there. Like I start with the, you know, I wanna abolish the police, but then it gets to, well, what does redemption actually look like? And that's a much harder question to ask because then it's like, okay, if I don't believe that a prison would stop violence from happening, then what do I want to do with a George Zimmerman? Mm -hmm. And do I believe that there is a world where George Zimmerman can become aware of the harm that he caused and unlearn all of that and become a different person? And do I believe he's not only capable of redemption, but that we are capable of receiving that redemption? And that is like a totally different thing. But to be honest, I think seeing my own redemption is what allows me to believe that for other people is like mm. i've seen myself be very closed off i grew up in a church community that was very socially conservative very 
to be honest, anti-women in ways that made me side with men who use their power in violent ways, which made me, like, I just believe very toxic things about the world. And so for me to now be in the place where I am, where I'm like, advocating for sex workers rights and like, you know, advocating for abortion and fighting for survivors rights, knowing the church community that I came up in. I'm like, how can I not believe that other people can change too? If they got the chance to, if we invested in the unlearning and de-radicalization processes that they need. But it's a lot of work that a lot of people don't want to put in. But to be honest, it's like, if, if we don't believe that people can change, then why, what is the form of justice that we're seeking? Like, mm. I don't know. I, I just firmly believe like you, to be honest, it's like you almost have to be like, believe in transformative justice and abolition or believe in the death penalty. Because like, mm-hmm. if I don't believe people can change, then what is the point of even putting them in a cell? Like why even keep that person alive if I don't think there's anything that we can do to change that person? Mm. And if I believe yeah. that some people are born evil, mm-hmm. like, like they come out of a womb evil then I don't believe that like anything that we're doing matters and I I believe the opposite I believe that we can change people's minds I believe that we can heal people I believe that um, survivors can get a lot better than what our current criminal legal system offers them mm-hmm. and I believe that that is possible without an overinvestment in police and prisons I feel this so I know so. I rambled no I was like I don't know. I feel like my like younger self was listening and I was like, it's just so, it's just so full of hope that I think is really radical Mm -hmm. and important. And I hear so much in what you're sharing that like, this is for everyone. Like, why are we fighting to uphold systems that are actually harming us so often? And we, we might not even know that, but there are so many people like you kind of shared about your younger self before the Trayvon case where you were like, yes, criminal justice, like, and, and then realize like, actually this system has been immensely harmful to me and my loved ones and my lineage. Like it's so, I think that's true for so many people and just the lens of being like, I'm going to choose to believe in transformation Mm -hmm. feels like, actually to me like it feels essential to like our own well-being like our own resilience and Mm -hmm. capacity to like continue living in this world and experiencing like joy and love like these these beautiful things I'm like if we don't have that that's such a loss and I think I feel that I think a lot of the time as well like we're saying there's like you know these kind of myths about restorative and Mm -hmm. transformative practices and I think a lot of the times people see it as like, oh, like survivor, you put your needs on pause in order to save this other person. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's so the opposite. It's not the win-lose. It's like everyone's healing. And for me, like choosing to maintain faith in humanity mm-hmm. was essential for my own well-being. Like it would have been too much of a loss for me to give up on this other person who has harm. So I just like, I feel that really deeply in what you're saying. And it's it's so important. Oof. And that was so deep. Like even just like choosing to not give up on you is me not giving up on me. I think that's so powerful and also a product of truly believing that we are interconnected too. And like, if we acknowledge that and we acknowledge like, I am having just as complex an experience as anyone else on this planet. And like all of my worst thoughts in my head, like, thank God I'm not acting on them. But like, it requires someone to be able to like hear me or see me at my worst and believe that there's something better underneath all of that. And I will say like something that's important to transformative justice as a politic and practice is that like, not everyone needs to do that for everyone. Like if you are a survivor of harm, it's not like, okay, I need to sit down with this person and like do that coaching with them. Like sometimes that's way too traumatizing and triggering, but like there are people who are trained to do that work and are willing to do it. And they should be given the resources to do that work so that person can make amends in the way that feels best with the people that they've harmed. Mm -hmm. And so like, for example, you know, children of child, like, of child abuse like it's not on them to like coddle their parents and be responsible for the harm that their parents have caused them 
but someone needs to hold that parent accountable in a way that sees who maybe hurt you. And now you learned that that's the way that you're supposed to parent this person. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's another important thing is like, yeah, we're not saying that survivors need to be the ones doing that for their abusers or for those who have harmed them, but that survivors should have access to a form of healing that is not so focused on the harmer that it's like, we've got to lock you up and we got to do this so much so that like, I'm not even listening to anything that you want. Like you're mm -hmm. over here telling me that you need therapy and that you need, you know, your expenses to be covered for a year because you you can't work right now and, and you just need time to just focus on you. And I don't even have time to give you what you need because I'm so busy over here spending hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions of dollars, just prosecuting a case against this person. Mm -hmm. And I could be funneling those resources into making sure you are whole and then deciding what we do with this person and how we hold them accountable. But I would rather dump that money into a criminal justice system that is not even seeing you as a whole person. I'm seeing you as the method through it. Like I literally have, you know, and this is something I talked about in that article too. I worked for a defender service and I literally heard prosecutors talking about their conviction rates in ways that was so not focused on anyone who had been harmed, but just like, listen, I need this for my career mm -hmm. and for me to advance. So I don't care what it is that you want. Like I need this. Um, and so I'm going to need you to get up in that stand. And if you don't want to, then you will be in contempt of court. And that is what that is. Like, it doesn't matter whether you don't want criminal charges. That's what we're doing here. And wow. I'm going to need you to get it together. And like, that really shocked me to see the loopholes and the ways and the, the manipulative ways that lawyers and judges and officers of the court are willing to twist for what they see as justice without ever asking the person at the center of it, what do you want? And like, mm -hmm. that's something that transformative justice is more willing to do. What do you want? And what can we do in holding this person accountable that would help you? Actually, I really want this person to know how much they hurt me. Great, let's make that happen. I really want to hear this from this person. Great, let's make that happen. Actually, like, I want this person to commit to doing something in the future for other people like me. You know, I don't want to be connected to them in any way, but I want to know that they are doing something for the community, you know, and like, you know, the community service asks and things of that. And like, whatever that is, just like caring more about hearing the person at the center of it mm -hmm. than enacting revenge on the person who did the harm. Mm-hmm. Just like a resounding fuck yes to everything that you said. Like, oh my gosh. Oh, yeah. It's so wild. I think that we almost have this like romanticized version of justice sometimes because of like Hollywood and the movies and whatnot. And it's often sort of this like justice is here to like uphold what's right and wrong right. in the world. And then right. like, when you break it down, you're like, oh no, it just comes down to this like, one guy who wants to like further his career like that's actually yeah. the thing for us it's so it's so vastly different and I just the paradigm of of care that mm. I hear you describing is like yeah. so much more human like it's so yeah. much more human like like of course we should be like hey person who was harmed what do you need instead of being like shut the fuck up person who was harmed we have our own like thing to do it's so exactly, exactly backwards yeah um similar to that I wrote down a longer quote that you said but I was just like I can't cut any of this out it's so good so <laughs> you were like I stopped seeing the world in swaths of good and bad and recognize that our punitive society first stems from a refusal to help people evolve past who they once were and what they once did and it also became clear that there could be no justice in such an intentionally broken system. Mm. So I'm curious if there's just like anything else you want to share on that. I just thought it was like yeah. really important. Thank you for pulling that one out. Yeah, I just believe it, it's so much easier to believe that some people are just really good people and others are really bad. Mm. And it's it's, I think, a comforting lie that we tell ourselves to make us believe that we are better than other people. But the reality is like, if we were put in some of the same situations, if we were as poor, if we were unhoused, if we were denying our full selves, if we had been hurt the way that some of the 
these other people have been hurt or neglected or whatever the case may be, we might find ourselves doing similar things. And I think that's not something that people want to admit. But an example of that is the Stanford prison um, experiment where um, they brought in students and randomly assigned some of them to be um, inmates and some of them to be uh, guards. And it's all supposed to be like, they were given some direction on like how they were supposed to surveil and police, you know, as guards and, you know, those who are playing inmates and incarcerated people are um, told that they're supposed to defer to this authority. But like in the span of like less than 20 days, I'm pretty sure um, the guards had such a ego trip and abuse of power that they were actually harming people in this experiment and they had to cut the experiment short. And then it was like this whole psychological thing because now people on both sides needed healing because those who had been randomly assigned the role of the guard were so shocked at what they had allowed themselves to do mm -hmm. um, with like no gun to their head. Just like, listen, we want you to play a guard. We're gonna give you a little baton and a little uniform. And like, let's see what you do in the span of like a week or two. And they turned into monsters. And I don't think any of those people believed that they were evil going into it. And I think they were just very shocked at how easily they were able to enact their influence and their power and violence against fellow students. And then exactly the same on the opposite side of just, wow, I'm so surprised at how easy it was for them to abuse us and forget that this is just an experiment. And if that's like a microcosm, but like you put some money in people's hands and, mm -hmm. and some like real weaponry and power. And it is mind blowing to see what people will do in certain situations. And so I, I do think that we have to one, stop telling us the lot, telling ourselves the lie that like we are any better than anyone else. And, um, I think, you know, people handle trauma in different ways, but if we're able to really see how, how life experiences transform people's minds like literally the brain chemistry in people's mm -hmm. minds and then how that turns into more harm um i think we're able to be more honest about how we can like undo some of that in the same way that someone can be brainwashed someone can go through a de-radicalization process and that's that's something that i just fully believe in but i do think it starts with us stopping to believe that and i think um you know, anytime anyone hints at that, even for a second, it's almost as if they're being painted as like an apologist, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. but we're not apologizing for it and we're not justifying it, but we are acknowledging like something in you is doing this for a reason. Even if it's something that we are saying is there's no justification, hmm. but we have to understand how you are reasoning it in your head and then do away with that so that you won't do it again. And so that we can also decide how we stop other people from doing it. Hello loves, we're gonna take a quick break from our conversation to tell you about my signature group coaching program, the Sensual Wholeness Academy. This is an eight month program for women and non-binary folk who are ready to let go of shame and claim self-love, sensual empowerment, and somatic healing within an epic community rooted in radical acceptance. The course includes eight modules which dive into content like strengthening boundaries, claiming your true yes and no, transforming shame around sexuality, building a mindful self-pleasure practice, releasing body and genital shame, transforming trauma-inclusive sex education, empowered intimacy, the wheel of consent, and so much more. When you sign up for the Sensual Wholeness Academy, you get access to live weekly group coaching calls featuring embodiment practices. You get the eight video training modules. You get access to our VIP virtual community space where you receive ongoing support throughout the whole program. You get guided journal prompts, community to last a lifetime, and bonus workshops with amazing guests. If you're someone who's ready to let go of shame or numbness and claim the sensual empowerment and self-love you deserve, then your next step is to go to marleyliss.com slash SWA. You'll also see the link for that in the show notes. So here you'll see plenty more details about the program and you'll be able to set up a free consultation call with myself where you'll receive personalized support and explore if this is a fit for you. So I'm so looking forward to connecting with you on this call. You're so worthy and capable of this reclamation. So um, there's a show on Netflix, I believe, and I, I think it's called Mind Matters. 
okay. um, but they kind of talk about it. And it talks about like the beginning of the FBI doing psychological profiles. And mm-hmm. there was a um, there was an agent who was basically saying like, I think there are some trends to how we understand the mind of someone who becomes a serial killer. And mm-hmm. if we can understand what they're doing before they ever kill a person and we can intervene, then we can stop them. And when he starts to bring this up to other agents, they're just like, oh, you, you believe that this person is good. And, th- and he's just like, no, I just believe that like, if we know that every serial killer we've ever arrested started by abusing an animal, if mm-hmm. a parent sees their child abusing an animal and they can say, ooh, if left unattended, this can spiral out of control. I want support for my child. Then we might stop this person from ever getting further than that. But if I'm so scared of what it will what will happen if I tell people and you're going to be hurt, then I'm pretending it's not a problem. And now 10 years later, you're Ted Bundy. And it's like, <laughs> oh, I wish as a parent, I had saw the signs and had support to, to do something at that moment to mm-hmm. stop you from hurting other people. It's, it's similar to that. So I think it's a really good series. And um, yeah, I think it kind of depicts some of the ways that we're not willing to face the fact that like, there are, you know, violence is evolutionary. There are, are initial acts of violence that if we were able to stop them in their tracks, they might not evolve. But if mm-hmm. we ignore them and pretend like they're not going to continue to evolve, then we're, we're working against ourselves. It's self-sabotage, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, so much brilliance and like everything that's being shared like so much, so, so much, like all of this. Um, I really appreciate the way that you like talk about this all so clearly in a way where you're acknowledging that you and all of us are a part of it. Like you said, it's, we're interconnected. And I think Mm -hmm. a lot of the times when we talk about like the systems, uh, it's easy to separate, like kind of disembody, like separate ourselves and see it as some like living entity that we're not actually participating in or a part of um which which we are so I know you've already shared like a lot about this but I'm curious like how can people weave transformative justice and abolition into their own lives and relationships like on a micro level on a on an embodied level yes I think that we you know police and prisons are one example of how our society prioritizes revenge and punishment over healing and transformation. But it is it is just one extreme example. But there are daily ways that we do that, where we rely more on punishment than like having the difficult conversations. So I mentioned gentle parenting at the beginning. And I do believe that parents are most uniquely positioned to implement this in their day-to-day lives because they spend so much time with children who are soaking everything up as a sponge. And if a parent says, the way that I get people to listen to me, the way that I get my kids to listen to me is by yelling at them and hitting them. Then that child grows up and believes that they need to yell to be Mm -hmm. heard. They need to be hit to be heard. That is an act of love to be hit. And they either respond to that in ways where it's like, okay, now I, you know, go through my own personal relationships, hurting others and believing that that's an act of love. Or when I am hurt, I believe it's an act of love and I don't know how to get out of that cycle. So like, that's one example of how I see people implementing grace and redemption in their day-to-day lives. But I think Mm. all of us can do that with stronger communication. I think there's like this trend right now. And I see so many memes on social media about like, you know, if, if you as a friend, like do one thing wrong, I'm cutting you off. And Mm -hmm. I'm never speaking to you again. I'm ghosting you. I'm blocking you on everything. And our inability to communicate with people and to decide that like it is easier to withhold access to me or to hurt you than to have an an actual conversation with you is also this idea that like there is no redeeming you. Mm -hmm. And I see that unfortunately that like, especially or not especially, but I see it among like women's relationships with one another where- Mm -hmm. Um, I see friends who like give so many second chances and are willing to put that effort into their romantic relationships, but into their platonic relationships, it's a lot more like you hurt my feelings. So I'm never talking to you again. And I think that boundaries are important, but being able to communicate clearly is an act towards the world that we want to live in. 
and helps us build a community where we feel more seen and validated, but also where we're able to amend our harm. And I think there's a lot of people who, if given the chance, would absolutely do what they need to, to uh, fix that, but are not often given the chance. We don't have the conversations and the difficult um, relationship building that allows people to say, wow, I didn't know that that's how I hurt you. And some of it is like, we're just afraid to be vulnerable with one another. So I think mm-hmm. that's one like big moment. I, I genuinely believe that if we better communicated with one another, um, we're able to say, you know what, this is not personal, um, but this is. And like separate that out and say, you know what, you're projecting onto me. I'm not going to take it personal, but I will hold you accountable in a way that is loving and honors that you are a person who deserves a chance to fix things, um, that we would have a totally different world. I think there's a lot of people walking around with hurt that like they've been hurt by someone and have never let it out. So then they bleed onto other people or they continue to hurt other people without even realizing it because no one is stepping in to say, you've hurt me, this is how. And the only time we do is when it becomes criminal, mm-hmm. when the pain becomes criminal and then we turn to police and prisons. But when it's more interpersonal, we don't know how to mediate harm. And that's why transformative justice is so big is like, even when it's non-criminal, like there's a lot of things that are not illegal, but hurt us. And if we don't believe that we deserve um, redemption or, or, or support and healing through that, then we're still walking through the world with all of that. So that's like one big one. But I think like a parent, an educator, anyone in a people-centered job is so uniquely positioned to just mm-hmm. have more community care. Like if you're an educator and like your go-to or like the way that your administration encourages you to lead your school is through more punishment versus like more restorative, like, okay, why is this kid failing my class? Um, what's going on in their home that might be mm-hmm. leading to this? Is detention going to help that or is that actually going to exacerbate it? Is truancy laws um, that are like punishing students for not coming to school going to actually figure out what's going on outside of the school? Or is it just criminalizing children and their parents for something that might be out of their control? So I think that's one, Mm. uh, sorry, another one. Um, But yeah, I think the last one would be just like how we advocate. I think that even for people who identify with abolition, they've not gotten to the place of like literally rethinking everything like it's it's almost an exhausting process because my gut (laughs) instinct like my initial response is often not the right response based on what I believe about abolition so something happens and I'm like oh my gosh like I want this person to just like exile like if I could like Thanos snap this person away I would (laughs) and it's like okay but is that is is that making me feel better without actually making any of us safer and is the way that I advocate actually putting more money and more investment in punishment than in figuring out like, why do humans not treat other people like humans? (laughs) Like what Mm -hmm. happened to us where we not only treat other humans, but our planet and animals and in general, our environment in a way that like denies the fact that we're all living things. And like, how do we get to a place where it says, I don't have any more ownership over your body or if I'm, you know, like literally over this tree, this sea animal, then anything should have over me. And Mm -hmm. if I believe that about myself, if I believe that I know myself best and no one should be having control over my body, then I should believe that for other people too. So Mm -hmm. I I just, I think just like rethinking how we advocate and like, is this actually getting at the root cause or is this a nice bandaid fix that makes me feel good is another thing that we can do. Yeah, beautiful, thank you. Um, I love that you like wove in platonic relationships and the ways that we, yeah, it is kind of trendy to just be like, you fucked me over, like, fuck you, I'm out, like, bye, (laughs) I don't take shit from anyone, like this kind of mentality, Um, but like, I kind of hear, or a word that's coming up as you're sharing, and you can tell me if you like vibe with this or not, is Mm -hmm. curiosity, just like willing to be curious Mm. um, and like asking those questions. And I think, I think a lot of the time, like, I believe our bodies are so wise. Like I'm such a, like our bodies know, like um, so often we ask the questions. We're like, well, why would they do that? But we, we don't think to actually answer or to be curious about what the actual answer is. And I hear in what you're sharing, just taking the the time to be curious and be like, well, why, why would they do that? Yeah. Like why actually, why would they? 
Um, it's curiosity is the exact word. That is so what it is. And I think some people are afraid to be curious because they're afraid of what that will signal to other people. Mm -hmm. I listened to such an interesting podcast episode about, um, about pedophilia. Mm -hmm. And it was about support groups for people who feel the urge and have never acted on the urge, but feel this urge and are just afraid to speak up about it to others because they're afraid of what people will say or do. And it was so interesting because yeah, at the time that I listened to it, I'm like, yeah, there's, there's no world where I want to empathize with someone Mm. who feels a sexual attraction towards a child. But then thinking like, well, if, if this person gets no support for this thing that they're acknowledging is harmful, like they know (laughs) it's bad, but they just have no support for figuring out what to do about it. Then they do act on it one day and it's like, damn, I wish we could have intervened at a place when it was just a thought, but we're so afraid to, to grapple with thoughts. And it's scary. It is scary because to, to understand and be curious about why someone does what they does, it makes us nervous that like, we are one step away from being them. And Mm -hmm. I think, again, that's why there are people who are trained to do this work, to ask the questions without coddling and without Mm -hmm. saying like, by no circumstances is any of this okay but I do want to pull out the why so that we can unlearn it and like unravel the the ball of yarn and then like put it back together again in a way that's like okay this is where that's coming from let's address that and then you will be in in a more healed place and not act on those things but I think in general we're afraid to empathize with people like for all sorts of reasons. And I do think that healthy curiosity, especially in environments where people know what to do with those answers. Like now that I know why you justified and what's going through your head, now I can help you unlearn that Mm -hmm. in in a way that protects other people from being harmed by those actions gone rogue. So Mm -hmm. it's that curiosity piece is so big. Yeah. Oh, it's so it's, I'm so glad that we're like, hitting on all these kind of realms of the same topic because it's like that example with that group like support for people who have that urge with pedophilia like that's so big for so many of us but like yeah it isn't separate from how we're acting in our platonic relationships like it is all connected and I think what we don't need in our world is more people flexing our apathy muscles and just like practicing not caring I'm like I just don't think we need that (laughs) and um, something I thought of a few times throughout this conversation is um, from Danielle Sarid's book Until We Reckon she talks Mm -hmm. about how um, shame isolation and exposure to violence are the biggest drivers of violence and when someone's having those thoughts or urges if our response is to shame them or for them to be isolated because they're not in a space where they're able to speak up about it like the result is going to be violence like prison circumstances shame isolation exposure to violence like the result is shown to be violence so it's just it's just wild that our our, our like quote, quote, current solution is so far from what we know works on like, yeah, on like a wisdom humanity level. 1 million percent. And, and we all know it because when someone shames us, we feel that pit in our stomach of, I should have never said anything. I should have bottled this up and kept it to myself. But then it's so quick to shame others. And I think social media has just become a cesspool for that, where everything becomes up for debate. Oh, this is what this person is doing. And what do you think about it? And then people are judging them in the comment section, know, know very little about the context. And I find myself in that rabbit hole of like, I don't need context. This is just disgusting, or this is just weird, or you're just a bad person. Mm-hmm. But we find ourselves in this place where we just like resort to shaming people in a way that just pushes people closer to the margins. And then when they feel like they're going to be exposed for this thing that they feel shame for, they lash out. That's like the source of a lot of the violence against trans women mm-hmm. is shaming people who are attracted to transgender women so much so that in an act of sexual, like, that person then becomes violent because they feel their shame bubbling over after they've done that. And that's something that like, that I've had to so unlearn from the church because there were so many ways that I was made to feel ashamed for having certain 
urges or desires or, or things that are really very natural. And I think if we're able to more normalize things that don't harm people and then figure out ways to, um, without shaming someone, hold people accountable for things that do harm people, I think we're able to transform why people do what they do, but also prevent people from lashing out to begin with. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Thank you. I'm like blown away by the time. <laughs> No, how did it go so fast? It literally went so fast. I'm like, I could actually talk to you for like days. And and for real, Bria, like I'm so grateful for literally every word you are saying. It's just like immensely transformative. It's like you're literally embodying everything that you're speaking about. And it just comes through on such like a felt level. So I know listeners are receiving that as well. So just thank you for the work you do in this world and like embodying it as well. Thank you. And likewise, I have learned so much too, since that first conversation we've had in following you and, and seeing some of the ways that you've been able to do this, because a lot of the transformative justice work that I do does not touch on more egregious forms of harm. And so to Mm. see you building that out and as someone who has every reason to have no empathy for abusers um, to still show up in this work every day is just like literally mind blowing. And, and it's people like you who just like give me the courage to do it because it's like, I have no excuse to not. And I think those in positions of power of any kind or privilege of any kind absolutely should because we know that there are so many women who are victims of sexual violence, but not just women. Um, and those of us who are not should be like at the front of holding other people accountable um, for the harm that they cause and doing so in a way that like stops it from happening versus I think some of us want to virtue signal a little bit more than we want to actually eradicate harm. Mm. And so I think that's just like a way that I am committed to doing and being better is like, I want to be a part of ensuring that we can abolish this in our lifetime. And that's not just abolishing the systems, but abolishing the violence um, in our lifetime. Yeah. Uh, Thank you. What is like, what is like an actionable that you feel inspired to maybe call people into right now? Like if someone's listening and they're feeling really fired up and inspired as I know they are, like what's something, what's where somewhere we can kind of start in terms of all this or continue? I think I'm going to give two. Mm -hmm. Um, so one, I love giving reading recommendations, and I, I think that's a really valuable place to just like grapple with these thoughts. And I think there are two books that are just like phenomenal introductions to abolition, but also introductions to spaces that are doing this work. Mariam Kaba's We Do This Until We Free Us is just like, like a holy grail of abolition in many ways. Um, and she does this work every single day, um, defending criminalized survivors of sexual violence, um, but also in in pushing for a world where we are like actually stopping the violence from happening and not just um, locking people up. And then Derricka Purnell's Becoming Abolitionist, those two are really great books. But even outside of that, was I think there are some people who like watch all the documentaries, read all the books and have not really thought about like what abolition looks like for them day to day. So uh, an activity that I think would be really helpful for people is to write down the name of three peoples who you have hurt and then three people who have hurt you. And from the people who have hurt you, think of for each of those people, what could they do? What would you wanna hear from them? Or what would you want them to hear from you to believe that they we're shifting towards and becoming a different person. And then for the people that you have hurt, what are the things that have gone unsaid, the things that you wish you could do for them, say to them to let them know that you have learned from it. And I think it's a really powerful practice because sometimes we have so much clarity on like, this person hurt me in this way and that way and that way, and this is what they need to do. And we have not even begun to realize like I've hurt people and never said anything about it. And like, I know I've hurt them, but I've tried to just like, brush it under the rug and like hope that it just goes away. And like, what is a more like head on way that I could address the harm that I've caused um, knowing what I know about what I wish people who harmed me would do for me. And Mm. I think if you can think about that for three people on each side, you will have a way better understanding of what transformative justice can be because it's like, wow, I, okay. Like 
now I actually want to reach out to these people, people that I've harmed. I have ideas about what I would say to them. And they might not want to hear from me, especially depending on how much time has lapsed. But at least I know that, and they know that it's not just, you know, um, we're pretending that it didn't happen. And then it might give me more insight into how I might be a little more willing to hear from the people who have hurt me. So I think that's what I would do is like do the activity, literally journal about it, take a walk and think about it, whatever that looks like, and then read some books on the topic. And I think we will have a world where people are a lot more open to the redemption of each other. Mm, so powerful. Thank you. Yes, Thank yes, you. yes. I want to hear how that goes for people. I'm definitely going to do that as well. Yeah. Yeah. Tag us. Try it and tag us. Um, how can people connect with you and support your work? And also, I just have to say that I was like so excited to see your Disney collaboration work <laughs> post you. and like that one post where you're like, I'm Bria and you're watching Disney Channel. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> the wand. No, I so appreciate it. Yes. So you can follow me on um, Instagram at freckled while black. Um, I also do have a little website for those who are more so looking to collaborate, but I think social media is just the best way to keep tabs on things that I'm doing on a day to day level. Um, and I would say just like follow the people who have taught me because I certainly didn't wake up knowing these things. And there are people who have taught me and continue to teach me every day. I already mentioned Miriam Kaba and Derricka Purnell, but also Richie Reseda, um, mm -hmm. the books of Bell Hooks, uh, the work of Asada Shakur, Carmen Perez, um, you Marley, like there are so many people out here doing this work every day and like find that. Um, and and transformharm.org, I think is another really great database for wanting to dig deeper into this. So I would say follow those leaders and you will be by proxy following me. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you so much. Okay, one last question is what is something that you're gonna do today for like your own joy or pleasure or well-being? Ooh, this is good. I think <laughs> I'm gonna watch a musical later. Um down. So I think I'm gonna watch a musical and sing and dance and be loud and all of that. And um I think it's having moments of joy, especially with so much going on in the world and us being so overwhelmed is a really great way to avoid burnout. So yeah. We love that. I love a musical. Thank you so much. Wait, now for I got to hear yours. Ooh, you mine? Doing? Okay. <laughs> Honestly, this was so heart nourishing. Like I feel very full by this conversation. Like I really, really, really do. Um, and I think it's like pretty sunny out today. I'm in Toronto and it's like all, it was all snowy this morning, but it's really sunny out now. So maybe I'll just like take a little walk and get some vitamin D going on. Nice. Love that. Love that so much. That's a good one. Yes. Thank you so much for all of this. And again, thank for everything you, you do in the world. And thank you everyone for listening. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for listening, loves. I know that that conversation inspired and educated you as much as it did for me. Bria is such an icon. Please do follow her, support her work, and support the work of so many of the incredible activists and leaders that she mentioned as well. Again, I'm so honored to have had this conversation and just stoked to share it with you all. If this inspired you, please do leave a review for the podcast. Written reviews really help us out and share it online as well. And like I said, if you're looking for a speaker for Sexual Assault Awareness Month or for any other time, I am so excited and honored to be sharing my story of restorative justice after sexual violence and tools for healing after trauma with students, educators, organizations, companies, um, community groups all over the world. So check out marleylist.com speaking. You'll also find that link in the show notes. I'm sending you all so much love and get ready for another epic episode coming next Wednesday.